0: Belong, become, believe. You're listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. The message for May 7th, 2023 is called One. The teacher is Shannon Barracliffe and the location is Vesper Point, Mount Sequoia in Fayetteville, Arkansas. Good morning, Grace Church. Like Betty said, welcome to Vesper Point. Thanks for joining us here in person, online, or if you're listening on the podcast. Like Alex said, I'm Shannon Barrowcliffe. Oh, I feel so loud right now. (laughs) I don't know if that's true. Okay. (laughs) Feels like I'm right here in my own ear. All right, so hopefully this weather cooperates. We like the clouds, so I can actually read what I've written. So without further ado, let's go ahead and jump in. So with over 7.8 billion people in the world, it's challenging to think of the role you play amongst everyone. Even narrowing it down to the state of Arkansas with only 3 million people, I find it difficult to comprehend how I, one person out of 3 million, can matter, can make a difference. If you're like me, you might have experienced a time or two when you've contemplated the you in God's story, asking yourself, how can you, one follower of God, mean much or make a difference. As I was preparing for this message, I found myself mulling this thought over, a thought that has been tugging at me for the last several years of my deconstruction, or as Stan Mitchell said last week, the maturing of my Christian faith. And with all tough questions, all existential crises, if you will, I naturally found comfort in seemingly sound advice or sound answers when I was reading Finding Nemo to my niece for the 23rd time in four days. We've all been here, right? So hopefully we have all seen Finding Nemo, a story about misadventures, exploring boundaries with ourselves and others, making friends, and of course, listening to the sage wisdom of your parents. Don't touch the butt, right? So in the children's storybook version of this tale, Nemo and his dad Marlin have just been reunited. Admits their reconciliation, just in time for one last adventure, Dory finds herself unexpectedly caught in a fisherman's net, met for any type of fish other than our three beloved main characters. In this situation, Marlin is beside himself with what to do, but Nemo realizes he can help, small fin and all. Swimming into the net, he finds Dory and instructs her and the other fish to swim down in unison. Acting as one, the fish are able to overpower the fishing boat above, breaking the net and freeing themselves. So you would think that this tale is a perfect example of how teamwork with one goal can have a life-changing impact. And it is. We could even relate it to God's people banding together to escape Egypt. But during that 23rd time reading of this book, I saw how one small fish was determined to save one friend. Not a fish looking to literally overthrow the power of the fishing boat. I saw how this one small fish gave the simple command of swim down and was heard. I saw how one can set out to rescue another from captivity, from injustice, and inadvertently save the lives of thousands. I saw how one person can be used in a story and how that one person can have a lasting impact on others. Moses was one person. He said one phrase, let my people go. This one person took one bold first step, one bold first declaration, and changed the story for you and me. Before we dive into today's verse, let's do a recap of how we got here over the last few weeks. In the introduction to the book of Exodus, John introduced introduced us to two sets of questions um, that we are going to use as our foundation as we read through the remainder of the book of Exodus. Reflect on these questions as you read the text and meet with your table groups over the following weeks. See what God is telling you the answer, or more uh, realistically, answers are to these questions. What are the Israelites being delivered from? What are the Israelites being delivered to? To help us begin to answer the first question, John fanned the concept of empire to us. He explained that empires are always authoritarian and hierarchical. Empires are inherently exclusive and violent. Empires make commodities out of people and vocation. We all live in empire. And I would argue most of us, to at least some degree, benefit and probably flourish from the structures of empire. I don't say this to make anyone feel shame or feel like they need to move to another country. This is the reality of our society and how we have chosen to set up the structure. And remember, this isn't inherent to America, so moving won't really help you. But knowing how this structure operates, is vital in understanding how to combat empire in the ways we're able to. This knowledge allows us to work to live apart from empire while living under empire. We'll continue to look at the structure of empire today in Exodus 5. I would encourage you to reflect on your own notions of empire as we explore more ways Pharaoh holds fast to his power, keeping the repressive hierarchies in place. So back to our recap of Exodus, because I am a full believer in repetition to help make concepts and stories stick. So this may be more for my benefit than yours, so bear with me. The setting is Egypt, circa 13th century BCE, and the Israelites are being deeply oppressed by Pharaoh and the Egyptians, valued solely for their free labor. Pharaoh becomes nervous that the Israelites are growing in numbers. (laughs) Remember, back to our Dory example. Uh, A vast number of people who band together can fight back and topple power structures, or at least talking fish can. And Pharaoh decreed that all Israelite sons should be cold at birth. Thankfully, the midwives, given this decree, did not follow it, and Moses was one of those sons. Through an impressively weaved basket and a little bit of luck, Moses grows up in Pharaoh's household until one day he sees the extent of the oppression of the Israelites, of his people. Um, this is where Laura pointed out for the first time a few weeks ago oh, no no, <laughs> um, that the Israelites used their voice and the importance of that moment of using their voice. She reminded us all to use our voice, to use our lament, even if we're not calling out to God specifically. There's real big power in our voice. So Moses was killed, uh, has killed an Egyptian guard for hurting a laborer and has fled to Median, where he is taken in by a local patriarch who naturally marries him, one of his daughters, um, Zipporah, and had a son. One day while out shepherding his flock, Moses encounters God for the first time in the form of a burning bush. It is here that God introduces himself and says in chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land, to the land flowing with milk and honey. Let's stop right here. These are pretty amazing verses. So think back to the cries of the Israelites that Laura talked about. God hears the people. He knows their sufferings. Let me state that in another way. God hears you. He hears your sufferings. That's a powerful God, and a God who loves his people, who loves you. In these verses, God answers the first of our two questions. He is making a declaration to Moses that he will deliver the Israelites from Egypt. And, of course, God breaks the news to Moses that it's him that will deliver this news to Pharaoh. (laughs) So if you're Moses in this situation, how would you react? Shocked? Angry? Maybe some of you excited, perhaps? How about woefully inadequate? (laughs) That's the emotion that neatly stirred for me. Moses' response to God feels like a great question. He asks simply... Who am I? Who is he to be God's mouthpiece, to deliver God's people? I love this response because it feels so relatable, both to everyday challenges like being asked to head up a new project you're uncomfortable with or being asked uh, for your family's medical history at the doctor's office. We've all been there. But it also shows the challenges that God brings us in his story. So mental show of hands, Again, mental show of hands. Who has felt inadequate before? Who has felt inadequate in God's story before? Presumably, I'm not the only one. So God's response to Moses' question isn't one of comforts and accolades. He doesn't extol Moses for his qualifications or even his potential. He uses him just as he is. God's justification for using Moses is because of him, because of God, not because of man. When I first learned about this concept of God using us as we are, it was a few years back, and it felt revolutionary. It felt countercultural to everything I've been taught. I didn't become a believer until I went to college, um, but I, was, I quickly learned and was taught that um, the goal as a Christian was to have daily communion, or sorry, daily uh, devotion and Bible readings, memorize your verses, attend church every Sunday, and it still wasn't enough. My former pastors and Bible study leaders might not have said explicitly that I wasn't enough to be used in God's story, but it sure felt like it. It wasn't until I started to look at the people that God used and ask questions that I put two and two together. So let's just go through some of the big names and see why God would use them. Avram, Abraham. He lies about his relationship with his wife Sarai uh, twice to her potential detriment, Remember? He's like, yeah, you can also marry that that guy. And regardless of Sarai's role in this situation, he sleeps with uh, his slave Hagar in order to have children that would ultimately have been seen as illegitimate. David, he was just a child when, when called into God's story to slay Goliath. And while seen as a beloved ruler, he murdered and committed adultery for no other purpose than to get what he wanted. And let's go back to Moses. He lived a life of luxury in the palace was a murderer, regardless of the circumstances, and by his own account, was a terrible public speaker. These are just three well-known names. You could do this activity with practically any uh, person in the Bible. And some of these individuals didn't, what some might say, oh my goodness, you guys, it's gonna be real tough. (laughs) What some might say um, would disqualify themselves until after they started to be used in God's uh, story. But by most standards, I'm going to restart that because the sun. (laughs) So some of these individuals didn't, what some might say, disqualify themselves until after they were part of God's story. But all of them did, by most standards, commit unrighteous and even deplorable acts. Yet they are part of God's story. In almost every case, you don't see God waiting until they are ready or even good enough um, compared to our standards. He meets them where they are and still uses them. What does that say about you and me? We are all part of God's story. So Moses then asks God how he shall tell the Israelites about him. Specifically, what is his name? Over the course of several verses, God gives multiple responses. I am who I am, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This is the point where God reveals who he is albeit a bit cryptically. According to Walter Brueggemann, the term I am who I am can be interpreted in two ways depending on what type of verb you believe I am is, causative or indicative. I'm not an English major. I'm not a teacher. So when I read through these two viewpoints, it got complicated real fast. (laughs) But Brueggemann summarizes the points really well. He says, given the causative or the indicative of the verb, given either of them, What is clear is that the declaration in the context of Egypt is a radical new thing. In the sphere of Pharaoh's cynicism, no such God has been permitted or even imaginable. But Yahweh asserts this durable self in a way that repositions all parties in the narrative and powerfully deconstructs Pharaoh and his authority. This is a powerful and new revelation to the Israelites. The other responses given were more well-known to the Israelites and are recited multiple times throughout Exodus. The triad of Genesis ancestors, as Bergman calls them, represent what is familiar to the Israelites. The miracles, the divine power, the covenants that came before those in Egypt. Combining this new name, I am who I am, with the Genesis ancestors and the promise to bring the Israelites out of Egypt, The Israelites, and thus us, are introduced to what I can only describe as an elevated God. It's not the right term, but I I couldn't mull over how even more impressive God is at this moment. This God doesn't conform to empire. This God delivers his people from empire. So turning back to the text, chapter 4 includes additional examples where Moses feels inadequate for the task at hand, and God continues to use Moses, never giving up on him. When Moses still doesn't feel like he uh, will be heard by Pharaoh, God provides a staff that God can use to demonstrate his strength, not Moses' strength, his strength, his miracles. When Moses condemns his own speaking skills, uh, God gives Moses himself as a mouthpiece before relenting and providing Aaron, his brother. Again, these are more examples that I find comforting that show how God uses one person at a time and meets them where they are never waiting for them to be ready or equipped. He will even listen and provide alternative solutions, if we ask, as in the case of Aaron. So finally, Moses is ready for his task at hand, leaving his home, taking his wife and his children back to Egypt. There's a new pharaoh in town. Everyone's pretty much died off, right? Here we go. So Moses and Aaron meet with the elders of the Israelites, speaking all that had been spoken to them by God, and just as God had said, they believed. Which brings us to Exodus 5-1, our verse for the day. Right? We're going to get there, long roundabout way. So afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, so that they may celebrate a festival for me in the wilderness. We have arrived at our first altercation with Pharaoh, God's first display of authority, and the beginning of the fulfillment of God's promise to deliver his people out of Egypt. Let my people go is probably one of the most well-known phrases in the Bible, if not in Western culture. It's a phrase that can be read with many inflections, many tones. When read with the full request, let my people go so that they may celebrate a festival for me in the wilderness. It can seem almost passive, a gentle request to Pharaoh, but it's anything but passive. Translations for the verb let, are also noted as release and free, depending on which translation you're looking at. Irrespective um, of, sorry. Um, so translations for the verb can also be known as release or free. Irrespective of the verb, it's the type of verb that's important here. Let is an imperative verb, which creates a command to the person being addressed, an expression that requires pharaoh to listen and obey. So it's really important, right? A command for Pharaoh to listen and obey. On the surface level, even knowing that this is imperative, the word let still doesn't feel impactful or extremely threatening to Pharaoh, at least when we read it currently. Besides not wanting to take orders, why would this feel very threatening to Pharaoh? Um, Especially when the request is ostensibly to take three days off work um, and then come back. The request isn't for Israel to leave forever, right? There are several elements here why this is such a powerful request and why Pharaoh would absolutely never agree. First, as I just mentioned, Pharaoh is being commanded. In Egypt, Pharaoh is seen as a god, not Yahweh, but a god regardless. So immediately, this is a threat to Pharaoh's power, even though, and this is the second part, Pharaoh doesn't know God. And when I say no... I'm not meaning that he is aware of God or knows of his existence and just hasn't experienced him personally. I'm talking about the know that the Israelites have experienced. The way that the Israelites understand who I am, who I am, is personally. Pharaoh hasn't even heard of Yahweh, a God who keeps company with slaves and outcasts, uh, where he is chosen, elevated, whereas Pharaoh is chosen and elevated among the Egyptians. So why would he acknowledge God's authority and power, his imperative? Yet even so, the command puts Pharaoh's regime in jeopardy, and he knows it. Even greater, this command sets a new precedence for all of history. So back in chapter 3, when God was listing out his name, he also declares that he has been sent for them. I am who I am has been sent for the Israelites, and forevermore for those in exploitative circumstances. Brueggemann notes, because of Yahweh's command, history is decidedly bent towards freedom and the bondage to live in hope of a new impossible possibility. Let me read that again. Because of Yahweh's command, history is decidedly bent toward freedom, and the bondage to live in hope of a new impossible possibility. That's a lot of power and a single imperative. Let's shift back to empire and how this request, separate even from the implications of the imperative let have, and how they threaten Pharaoh in his system of power. First, let's revisit how John described empire a few weeks back. Empires are always authoritarian and hierarchical. Empires are inherently exclusive and violent. And empires make commodities out of people and vocation. Moses and Aaron's request to leave, even if for a short time, posed a threat to the system. If the Israelites left for the desert, they would be out of Pharaoh's physical reach, physical control. The Israelites' request to celebrate a festival for God would mean that no longer would the Israelites' allegiance, no matter how coerced be to Pharaoh, they would be to Yahweh. Leaving would also mean no free labor, even if it's only for three days, which directly disrupts the system of oppression that Pharaoh's economy is built upon. Pharaoh's comment on his free labor uh, leaving is quite telling. So starting in verse 4, he states, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their work? Get to your labors. Now the Israelites are more numerous than the people of the land, and yet you want them to stop working. I don't know why I immediately think of office space or any other commentary on the American workforce when I hear these verses, but I suspect it has to do with the reality of how corporations, empire itself, view the workforce. Having been been part of the labor market for the last 20 years, I've experienced being seen as a number, an expendable thing valued only for labor. So these verses probably hit a little too close at home and make me want to cry them just a little bit. So the remaining verses in chapter 5 go on to describe Pharaoh's wrath with Moses and Aaron's request, which of course is denied. Because the inquiry would take away the exploited labor, Pharaoh's response was to make the labor even more difficult for the Israelites by taking away building materials, but they still had to produce the same amount. Um, they also called them lazy and basically gaslit the Israelites. And worse yet, because their lives became even more difficult, the Israelites blamed Moses and Aaron for additional hardships, causing Moses to cry out. So how do the fears of Pharaoh relate to empire and the empire that we live under today? As we discussed before, empire is about power and control. Systems and rules have to be set up so that people uh, living within those systems can't disrupt or challenge them. Take, for example, the parameters surrounding slavery in America. While enslaved men and women were converted to Christianity, the fear of slave insurrection was so great that slave owners placed prohibitions on black churches meeting openly in many parts of the South. The same was true for the religions of uh, many indigenous people groups. They could be converted to Christianity, but fear of their other gods was too much of a threat to power structures. A common theme we have seen over the last few months in our current government systems is the perverse need to enforce decorum. The rules of decorum in our Senate and House systems, both at the federal and state levels, are intended to keep multiple people from talking over each other or making derogatory marks. On the surface, Decorum rules seem like common sense, and in many ways they are. However, when rules of decorum are interpreted and used to suppress voices, remove representation, or otherwise silence those who dissent, it allows for power structures to remain unchallenged and to quiet anything or anyone who would disrupt that power. Zoe Zephyr, a representative in the Montana House, was removed for breaking the rules of decorum. During her expulsion hearing, she made this statement. When the speaker asked me to apologize on behalf of decorum, what he is really asking me to do is to be silent when my community is facing bills that get us killed. He is asking me to be complicit in this legislature's eradication of our community, and I refuse to do so. Systems and rules have their merits. I am thankful we have a system, an entire ecosystem for driving. Traffic lanes, turn signals, medians. They create a semblance of order and generally work if the majority follow the rules of the road. What we need to be comfortable with is questioning systems and rules when they either are either in place for no reason. One of my favorites is in San Diego. You can be charged $250 if your lights are up after February 2nd. They, thankfully, they don't enforce it, but it's still there. Um, or if the rules and systems are designed to limit the freedoms of certain individuals or groups that don't pose a legitimate threat to others. Back to our driving ecosystem. Overall, very useful to have rules um, and general decorum on the road, right? What isn't right is how the highway system was designed to intentionally separate black and white communities, usually to the detriment of the black communities. I challenge everyone here to reflect on the systems and rules that you abide by, both from a government standpoint, but also in other aspects of your life, work, social, even your own family. What rules or set of practices are in place that, uh, upon further reflection, are exclusionary or intended to keep power from some at the detriment of others? How can you help to change those rules, shift those practices? It feels uncomfortable and sometimes impossible, especially if you're used to not rocking the boat, but I believe God calls us to challenge these practices and work to right the systems of injustice. Before we wrap up this morning, I want to revisit the festival Moses and Aaron went to take the Israelites to perform. This isn't the last time that the request to celebrate and worship God will show up in Exodus. We'll see it at least three more times. Uh, Which means that there's something else we need to learn about this request. Like, why do they need to go worship God? Again, leaving Pharaoh to celebrate God would mean not only changing allegiances, but coming under a new authority. Thankfully for us, this new authority this new allegiance, is powerfully different from Pharaoh's empire and comes to a head at Mount Sinai where we see the Ten Commandments come into play. These commandments are what set God's kingdom apart from empire. They are radically different to the oppressive states of places like Egypt. The book of Deuteronomy spends a lot of time unpacking these uh, commandments, providing commentary or interpretation, since the commandments themselves are ostensibly simple policy statements. And this is where I wanted to finish for today. There is a recurring theme in Deuteronomy that will have a through line for the rest of Scripture, Old Testament and New. It's a theme that when I first learned about it a few years back as part of my deconstruction, it changed the way I read and understood the Bible. It transformed the way that not only I interpret the text, but how I view God and created a lens for which to make decisions in my life. I can't tell you how transformational it was and continues to be. Three sets of people groups, the stranger, the orphan, and the widow. Remember these people. They are who God delivers us out of empire Four. Again, Deuteronomy is a long commentary about how to live out the Ten Commandments, giving Israelites new rules and parameters to live by to help them, all of which to help the stranger, the orphan, and the widow. Deuteronomy 16.11 states, Rejoice before the Lord your God you and your sons and your daughters, your male and female slaves, the Levites resident in your towns, as well as the strangers, the orphans, and the widows who are among you at the place that the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name. Deuteronomy 24:20. When you beat your olive trees, do not strip what is left. It shall be for the stranger, the orphan, and the widow. Deuteronomy 15:11. Since there will never cease to be some in need on the earth, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. The command is continual. Support those with the most needs. Don't forget them, as empire has. Bergerman notes this triad refers in the uh, covenantal tradition to those who are especially vulnerable in a patriarchal society because they are without a recognized male advocate. The stranger is often interpreted as the alien or the foreigner. In many texts, I understand it to be anyone who I don't know, especially if that person uh, doesn't come from the local community or has a local community support system. In this day and age, even though we still live within a patriarchal society, the restrictions placed on orphans and widows uh, look a little different because we don't have to have that, that male headship as we've had to have in the past. So it doesn't quite play out like it did in Egypt but it doesn't mean that these groups are any less at risk. Before we conclude, I want to introduce to to you a new concept. One contrary to empire. It's a new concept, new order that Yahweh brings when he declares, let my people go. I have heard it referred to as shalom, peace, but more commonly it's known as kingdom. Kingdom trumps empire. It turns empire on its head. Where empire is about authority, hierarchy, and exclusivity, kingdom is about freedom from productivity. It's about freedom from, for those without freedoms. It's for the stranger, the orphan, and the widow. As the worship team comes back up and those serving communion prepare, I encourage you to take time to reflect on who the stranger, the orphan, and the widow are in our community in our own lives. How do you see them? How do you define them? These aren't simple questions with simple answers. They require constant reflection, constant wrestling. Concurrently, I challenge you to think how you are serving the stranger, the orphan, the widow. As God commands us to in Deuteronomy, we don't have olive trees or fields of wheat to leave for their needs, but we do have time, money, uh, and ourselves to dedicate to them. Circling back to systems of power and rules, how do these systems we operate in affect in effect the stranger, the orphan, and the widow? What limits their rights, their freedoms? What can you do to help fight for them, even if it's just one person? Bergaman closes his chapter on Exodus 5, reflecting on the importance of the phrase, let my people go, to the Israelites then and to us now. He states, the freedom that Yahweh sets in motion via Moses is a freedom for neighborliness. A freedom that attests that neighborliness is more important than self-aggrandizing productivity that marks the now doomed regime of Pharaoh. As you take the elements today, and switching it up, we're dipping. <laughs> uh, sit with God in the power of his imperative, let my people go. Reflect on the fact that my my means you and me. Let my people go. It's inclusive just as Jesus' death on the cross was for us all. Thank you for listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. You can find more about us online at gracechurchmwa.org. Grace and peace.